And so I was just randomly, you know, talking to people about chickenbog and they're like, what is that? And I'm like, how do you not know what chickenbog is? But and the crazy thing is, is you would, I guess I always thought that people, especially, I knew it wasn't like all over the world, but I mean, I thought it was bigger, but it's actually a smaller area than you think. But even people in North Carolina don't even know what chickenbog is. And I mean, we're six miles from the state line. So, I mean, of course, like in Tabor City, they know. But when you go a little bit further out in North Carolina, there's a lot of people that don't know what chickenbog is. So I was just shocked when I started working here and had conversations with people and they didn't know what it was. So now it's like, yeah, I do the Lord's Bog Office, but do you know what chickenbog is? So it's now a question instead of me just talking about it. Welcome back to Local Fairy Tales. I'm your narrator, Nora Vetter, introducing you to Local Fair, F-A-R-E, that's only found in certain regions, states, cities, and so on. Listen in as the voices of those that know it well, historians, creators, servers, festival organizers, superfans, and other local fair experts tell the tales of local fair as only they can. Today's featured fair is Chicken Bog. Interviews were recorded between September 2022 and September 2023. You just heard Samantha Norris, Executive Director of the Loris South Carolina Chamber of Commerce. Now, let's meet the rest of our Chicken Bog Tale Tellers. My name is Singleton Bailey. I was chairman of the Loris Bogolf Festival for the first 10 years that it was held. Pepper Lily, I'm Loris Bogolf champion for 2022. Samantha Norris, executive director of the Loris Chamber of Commerce. Susan Ramsey Platt, current chair of the Horry County Historic Preservation Commission, which is the largest landmass county in all of South Carolina. I'm Jay Williams, retired museum curator, and you're listening, listening to the local fairy tale. The local fairy tale of Chicken Bog. Fairy tale of Chicken Bog. Tale of Chicken Bog. Did you know? Local Fairy Tales is an independent podcast run by a whopping team of one person. Yes, that would be me, your narrator, Nora Vetter. A lot of work goes into assembling each episode, and your support via word-of-mouth recommendation, podcast review, and or a follow and interaction on the Local Fairy Tales podcast Instagram or Facebook page is greatly appreciated. If you want to take your support a step further, consider a donation to the tip jar. You can find the tip jar link in each episode description. Donations will go towards a monthly Zoom subscription a new hard drive to back up audio, fueling an editing session with a caffeinated beverage, and more. Thank you for listening. I'm Susan Platt, and you are listening to the local fairy tale of Chicken Bog. Chicken Bog is... I am going to read directly from our Pomeroy Foundation. Hungry for history. Marker, a one-pot dish made with rice, chicken, and sausage 
which was used to feed crowds by the 1920s, traditionally eaten after gathering tobacco in northeast South Carolina? Well, chicken bog is a dish whose ingredients are rice, chicken, and sausage. You have to have smoked sausage, chicken, rice, for sure. Those are the three main ingredients. It's a one-pot dish, but mostly it just goes to the chicken, rice, sausage, and your seasoning. People use celery in it, onions. Any types of chicken. Most people cook with uh, whole chickens with the bone in and then debone the chicken and uh, various types of pork sausage and beef sausage, onions and spices, and uh create the chicken to make a broth that you cook the rice together with. When it was started, it would generally be just be served by itself. If you're on a, a farm somewhere and guys are working, someone will be cooking, and you get a plate and you get your chicken bog, so you get your meat and your starch. And most of the time in my life, it would be served with a piece of sliced bread because it would be easy to just grab and have it. Some people cook biscuits or other things to go along with it. Oh, yeah, sweet potatoes. You know, candy yams, uh, that's another um, thing that uh, is common to see served with uh, chicken bog. When I've eaten it, it's pretty much been served by itself with maybe a side dish of something like uh, greens or black-eyed peas. So a lot of people do green beans with it. I've seen baked beans with it. I have to say, I didn't see this coming, but I actually had a a members meeting one time and I got Ricky Do to cook some chicken bog and he brought corn as a side and corn is my favorite, but I was like, I've never had it with chicken bog, but it is now my favorite. If I ever cook chicken bog, I always cook corn with it and it's so good. And usually used to that they would take uh, a pack of light bread, you know, just regular bread and they eat it with just a piece of bread. I don't think there's any one thing that you necessarily have with it. But most of the time, it's just intended to be eaten by itself. Chicken bog is a South Carolina specialty that's closely related to other rice dishes, rice and chicken dishes, such as chicken perlo, uh, chicken pilaf, <laughs> and jambalaya. You could even compare it to arroz con pollo that you might find in Tampa. That's chicken and rice. <laughs> so if you cross into Georgetown County, it's called perlo. But in Horry County, is chicken bog. Towards Charleston and around there, uh, they call it perlo. And they're, of course, in the, the southernmost parts of Horry County, it, it will start moving into perlo or pergo as you get closer to Georgetown, where the rice industry, the rice culture was, and then into Charleston. So, And I don't really know the difference. I think one is wetter than the other. I think chicken bok might be a little bit drier than perlo, but you know, it's basically the same thing, but we just call it chicken bok. I've never researched it to find out where the name came from, who gave it to it, other than, you know, it was just maybe a boggy pot of rice. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, you know, the rice doesn't fully cook and get dry. It stays moist. That's a good bog. So, you know, Maybe it came from there. You don't want it to be too wet. And you don't want it to be too dry. Now, we interviewed one of the authors of the book, Taste of the State, which is a historical recipe book of the state of South Carolina. And he told us that from a chef standpoint, that it could be because when you cook the chicken and the rice in the big cast iron pot, because it was used to 
feed usually a large group of people on a farm, the rice gets a sticky, bog-like texture as opposed to when you cook rice in a smaller amount. Now, again, there are people that will argue this. And then again, the another reason that was offered is that because Horry County at the time was mostly swampland and boggy, with you have the PD River, the Waccamaw River, and our topography was just bog. You know, it's a very thick bog. And so it was used during war in these bog-like areas where people were camping or living. Well, of course, we don't know where exactly where the name came from, but we know that in English usage, a lot of these words like burgu or muddle in a bog, they're, they're descriptive of the texture of the dish, but not so much what it tastes like, which is good. Texture is probably one of the most things, like I said, you don't want the rice to be too dry and you don't want the rice to be too wet, but um, you need it to be cooked to where it's consistent, no crunch. You know, some people can't cook the rice fully. Some people make it too, too moist. And so the consistency of the rice, the ratio of meat to rice and a good flavor, that's just some of the things that I look for. And uh, what makes it unique is that um, it seems like whoever cooks it um, is always a different taste than um, anybody else's recipe. Everybody's recipe seems to have a unique taste. And then people put their own twist in, and that's what makes it so unique is because not one bog is exactly the same. I live here in Merle's Inlet, so we're on the coastal community, and the seafood is plentiful. So folks in my neighborhood will add shrimp or they'll add oysters. It gets away from the traditional, but it, it gives you a, a good variation of it. Some people add pork. We cook a, a ham bog at times. We cook a pork bog at times. But traditionally, it's just made with chicken. I mean, it has evolved over the years because like my dad would put pork chops in it. That would be his first thing that because he would get the grease from the pork chops and have a little bit of pork. And so it and then it evolves into ground sausage now. So we have smoked sausage and we also put pork sausage in there like grounded up you know what i'm saying so um yeah so it evolves but it could be the same thing but yeah we have our own special recipe <laughs> it's always been uh, known as chicken bog um you don't usually hear people say bog usually it's all prefaced by saying chicken bog if you had a say a typical frying chicken you'd cook that in a pot until the meat was falling off the bone you chop up the meat uh strain the broth you'd put the broth back in the pot. Well, I should say also, you'd probably put some some chopped up onion when you're cooking the chicken and maybe celery. That's not in every recipe. And then when you put the cut up chicken and the broth back into the pot, uh, you add some cut up smoked sausage and your rice. So the key is then when you put the chicken broth in the pot with the rice, you have to have enough broth that the rice is going to cook properly, but you want it to remain moist. So you might use, say, instead of the ratio that you'd normally use to cook rice where you want it to end up dry, you'd add a little more broth so that it ends up moist. Now, you can look up recipes online for chicken bog or chicken perlo, and some people put tomatoes in or 
other additions, but uh, that's not the true chicken bog. It was a pretty simple dish. Most people have um, pretty much towed the line on that and, and kept it, you know, uh, with those three ingredients. Sometimes you might see some, uh, maybe a chicken liver or laying around in there, or you might see a um, boiled egg in the dish, but um, basically it's the same formula. And and the crazy thing is, is your bog's not exactly the same. I could cook it one way this time, and the next time I cook it, it could be, I mean, it'll be similar, but it won't be exactly the same. So it's kind of different every time, because it could be just the amount of water you put in there or whatever, or you know what I'm saying? You could put a little bit more spices than you did last time, and so it could vary but no two bogs are alike. And um, so there's really no t- two chicken bogs are alike. They all, for some reason, have um, their unique flavor. And why that is, I don't know. <laughs> I would think if you deviated too far from the chicken bog, people would be mad because there is an expectation <laughs> when you eat it what you're going to taste. I mean, when you know you go to eat a good hot dog, you know, you don't want to eat a hot dog filled with peppers or something. So there's an expectation. But, um, I think most people just put a fork in and get what they got. (laughs) I'm Jay Williams, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of Chicken Bog. Well, I was working on a documentary film with my friend Stan Woodward, maker of Southern Culture documentaries, and we were down at Gallivans Ferry, South Carolina, visiting a political stump meeting. Now, for those who don't know what that term means, a stump meeting is a political rally where all the candidates for political office show up. And it used to be back in the old days, they didn't have a platform to stand on. So they'd stand up on a stump and give a speech. And so they called it a stump speech. You know that you may have even heard that. They even use that term today. But uh, this was a stump meeting down on the riverside. In, I think it's on the PD River uh, in that area of South Carolina where chicken bog is made and they were serving chicken bog in gigantic quantities so big that they actually were turning it over and stirring it up with a small shovel and (laughs) serving it out to hundreds and hundreds of people. And that was my first time eating chicken bog. That was probably sometime back in the 1990s and I really enjoyed it. And of course, I've it's rare for me to encounter any food that I don't enjoy, but uh, <laughs> but I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed uh, hearing the story about chicken bog, which some of the folks fixing it uh, told me. And then I did some other historical research and found out even more about it. Well, my wife is from Graham, North Carolina. And um, when she moved here, she had never eaten chicken bog. So it seems to be a dish that's uh, coastal, kind of. The, you know, the, the sand hills and the low country seem to um, find it more so than upper state. It seems to be a more of a lower state dish than elsewhere. I guess people can make it anywhere, but really it right now, northeastern South Carolina is where you're going to find it, which is going to be from the coast of the Grand Strand all the way inland to Dillon, Bennettsville, all that rural area. It was where tobacco was grown. Farm area. This entire area used to be farms. So in PD area of South Carolina. That name Chicken Bog is pretty localized. That only occurs in one 
area of South Carolina, which people who live in South Carolina call it the PD region, which is because of the, the great PD River, which runs down uh, from North Carolina through around Florence, South Carolina. People who have run, come down I-95 know where that is. And then down to the coast, uh, just south of Myrtle Beach or between Myrtle Beach and Charleston. Uh, and so that area, the lower area of the PD River is one of the areas where there were a lot of rice plantations. So in that PD region, because of its rice growing heritage, of uh, that whole area from 10, 15 miles inland from the coast, uh, that whole area then is where they call it a chicken bog. If you go just like one county south, where there also were dozens of rice plantations, if you go down to Georgetown County, where the Santee River comes in, and there were also lots of rice plantations, they call it chicken perlo or perlo. But chicken bog is the name that's stuck in that area. They have their own way of cooking it. They love it, and they don't intend to cook it any differently. Sir, like I am the chair of the Horry County Historic Preservation Commission, and we are a certified local government, which is a national program that we mirror and we honor the National Parks Service in regards to historical preservation. We are the only county in South Carolina that is part of this program. And because of that, one of the things required is a preservation plan, which lays out the goals for our county, whether it's putting houses on the registry, recognizing century farms, putting historic districts in our county. And one of the things that our commission is responsible for is placing historic markers in Horry County. And when I got on the commission, it was during COVID. Okay. Um, no one had money. You know, our funding fell to almost nothing. And I don't know if you know, but a double-sided marker, they're not cheap, are like $4,000. And so during COVID, when it was so, no one knew what the future was going to be. It was hard to ask a county, the fastest county growing in South Carolina, that needs roads and infrastructure to fork out money for historic markers. It just seemed relatively insignificant, but still it was in our preservation plan and I wanted to be successful. So um, our staff liaison at the time, she just retired, Lou Conklin, we started searching for grants and she sent me something and it was called Hungry for History. And she goes, what about chicken bog with a question mark? I'm like, well, that's interesting. Let me see if it will meet the criteria of being historic. So you just Google chicken bog and the Library of Congress, just because the Tabor City Tribune, all of their historic newspapers have been scanned and it just started popping up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we can do this, Lou. From a, around the region of uh, where Myrtle Beach is located, a lot of people know where that is, but say around the North Carolina, South Carolina border, from there down all the way down the South Carolina and Georgia coast in colonial times and up through this time of the Civil War, there were dozens and dozens of rice plantations. Thousands and thousands of pounds of rice were grown there. During colonial times, it was the most lucrative crop uh, of any. And the rice plantation owners were the richest in colonial time. And so not only 
the uh, plantation owners and their families, but also uh, the enslaved people not only grew a lot of rice, but they ate a lot of rice. And so that rice eating tradition goes back to those days when rice was a staple crop uh, grown all along the Carolina coast. The origin, well, you have to go all the way back to the rice culture in South Carolina, which was um, ran by slaves. One of the things that's interesting about the rice plantations is that they were, you wouldn't call them humane places because no place run on slave labor would be considered a humane place. The three major ports on the East Coast for bringing in slaves were Charleston, Georgetown, Wilmington. And we're right here in the middle of it. So that's why, you know, it is so prevalent. And then Louisiana, and then they were brought in other places, but those were your main places. So it's our history, not proud of it, but it's our history. So very interesting, very huge part of America. And you just cannot erase that history or the relevance of their contributions to uh, what we eat in our culture. Yeah. But the rice plantations were a little different from, say, uh, what happened on your typical cotton plantation, because what was involved with a rice plantation was very skilled work. They had people who were specialists in irrigation and drainage because the rice fields have to be flooded at certain times and then they have to be drained at certain times. So they went into these places that were essentially like swampy areas, but areas that weren't necessarily wet all the time. And they cut hundreds of acres of trees, took out all the stumps. So you had like uh, a tremendous area where this rice was grown, hundreds of acres that were cleared by slave labor. And then a very complicated system of dikes and uh, canals and so forth was created so they could bring water in when they wanted and drain it off when they wanted. Uh, And so if you go down to that part of South Carolina today, there's still some old rice plantations, even though they, they don't grow rice there anymore. But you can still see, in many cases, where the old rice fields were because the canals are there, some of the dikes are there, the floodgates and so forth, some of them are still there. So uh, I think it makes eating a dish like chicken bog even more meaningful when you go visit some of these historic places. I mean, there is a history, but because of the rice culture in the low country, now there was not, we did not have a lot of that rice culture in Horry County because we did not have the areas to grow that. We were mostly agriculture. I know it's hard to believe, but Myrtle Beach used to be a farm and North Myrtle Beach as well. So, you know, we didn't necessarily have all that rice, but because of the rice culture in the low country, everyone had rice. It was readily available. If you think about coastal South Carolina and North Carolina, you know, they were You don't want to say they were born out of rice plantations, but rice was a big harvest for us here in coastal South Carolina in the 1700s. So it was a plentiful thing that we could get. So it was an easy staple and all houses had it. And plus, if you had rice, it was potable. You could carry it. You could save it. It would last versus other staples that were there. So Those are probably the communities I would find it in the most. One of the interviews that we did was a lady who was like a fourth generation in Ainer, and both her maternal and paternal grandparents owned farms that had been in the family since for centuries. And 
she told us that the reason rice was readily available to every farmer is because it did not spoil. She said, every once in a while I get bugs, you just pick the bugs out. But she said, potatoes in the South would rot, you know, and sometimes they wouldn't, they weren't able to grow them. We had a lot of rain. So she said, rice was something that you could go to the store and purchase and it would always be there on your shelf. I was reading one source of historical information about rice plantations and he talked about there was a grits time of year, there was a potato time of year, but rice time of year was all year round. And so the same thing with chickens. They always grew chickens because they had eggs and, you know, and it was always a source of protein that they had. And I mean, you can go back, like I said, in the slave narratives and they speak about chicken and rice. Although I have to say, if you went back to the time when the enslaved people were working on the plantations and you have to remember that like on the rice plantations, everybody would take a break from all that from their work in the middle of the day and the, the big meal of the day was eaten right around one or two o'clock in the afternoon and it was cooked communally so like on a big rice plantation you might have four women who were the cooks for the workers they'd have separate cooks for the children but those who were working during the day they would cook and imagine this you might be cooking for a hundred people or even 200 people. Some of these rice plantations had as many as 100 or more slaves. And so they'd have huge, big cast iron pots where they'd be cooking this. So we're not talking about, you know, one little frying chicken. <laughs> and probably there, you're talking about cooking meat with the rice. It isn't necessarily chicken. They'd be cooking the meat that was in season or was available. So it might be what they'd hunted might be anywhere, anything from venison to possum, or it might be salt pork or, or a combination thereof. So it evolved. Well, uh, you know, today's chicken bog doesn't have bones in it. <laughs> when you're a young fellow and granddad was cooking it, he would never debone his chicken. The bones would stay in the pot. You would use you boil the bones so you get the marrow out for flavor, but he would never remove them. So it was good to eat. But it was never any fun having to pick around chicken bones while you're eating it when you're a little kid. Actually, when I'm sitting there interviewing the lady that her family had all these generations of farms. And then she was like, don't let anybody tell you that they didn't put bones in chicken box because you throw that whole chicken in there because those bones are what gives it that flavor. And uh, it's just funny because my daughter, who's 24, brought home some bone broth the other day, you know, and I'm like, OK, now you're buying it in a box. Why didn't you just stick the chicken in the pot? We go back into the 1800s in Horry County. So, you know, he would be cooking and he, he said he was taught by his father and his father taught his father. So and when we were doing the research for this marker, what we found out was that everyone has their own recipe. And because it was made with things that were just readily available on a farm, no one wrote down the recipe. You know, granddad's was real easy. He, he didn't put a lot of time in it. He, he would get his chicken and wash his chicken and boil it in the pot and, and put some rice in. 
but, you know, onions and sausage and things he could just cut up and make easy. So it was passed through our family that way. When I was doing this research for this marker, and I am not a historian, you know, I've written small grants for a nonprofit before, but this was my first major delve into um, looking for historical primary sources. Because in order to verify that something's historic, it has to be over 50 years old. Okay. That means it has to be documented. Like you have to see the words chicken bog in a magazine, um, someone that was interviewed 50 years ago and documented. So when I started looking for chicken bog, the first mention I could find, but it was just chicken and rice, was in the slave narratives. Okay. So I followed that and I found one in a 1920 article from the Dillon Herald that mentioned in 1918 a fundraiser that served chicken bog to raise money for a school. Actually, the Little Rock School in Dillon, South Carolina, that is on the National Registry. So that's pretty incredible. So now when people think of Horry County, they think of wide, white, sandy beaches, and it's just beautiful. But at the time, back in the 20s, when they started saying chicken bog and whatever, Horry County was so rural that it was the most impoverished county in all of the state. And then in that time of tobacco, and all the farms weren't large because we didn't have the big rice plantations. They were mostly smaller farms and people made their own food and they bartered amongst each other. So what you had is this tapestry of family farms. I, I grew up with my grandfather cooking it and I learned an original recipe from him, but... Uh... He would cook in his cast iron pot, which was easy to clean, but he cooked on corn cobs. He would build a fire with corn cobs, and they would glow red like coal, and that's what he cooked on. So when you think about the farming communities, it was the ease of cooking, and they had everything that they needed. Most farms had chickens, so you were raising your chicken. Rice was easy to get because it was plentiful in the area. So I would think it probably went back to then because that's where – my family heritage brings it from. Oh, when we were doing the research for the for Little River, we just unveiled a Little River marker, um, a, a state marker there. That because that's the oldest settlement in Horry County was in Little River. But what we found out is that um, in the twenties. Okay. And this would have been about the time that Dylan and I started reading articles in these newspapers about chicken bog that. A lot of the emancipated um, slaves and black people couldn't own land here, so they left. Okay, in Little River, there were farm owners that almost starved because they did not know how to farm their land. Very interesting, right? And that would correspond to in 1918, 1920, they're serving chicken bog. Well, guess what? They've got rice in a container, may have bugs in it, but you can pick it out. And they had chickens. You know, they were relatively easy. So that might have evolved out of the fact as well that they couldn't farm their land or they didn't have the help to farm the land. But I will tell you that tobacco, because of tobacco, 
Horry County went from being the most impoverished rural county in South Carolina to the richest county in South Carolina. There were advertisements where at the tobacco barn in Loris, where they were providing free chicken bog for those who would bring their tobacco to come and sell their tobacco at auction. A lot of the farmers, when they were maybe putting in crops and, you know, uh, tobacco or whatever the crop might be, it was a dish that could be used to uh, serve several people uh, without really... Uh, too many other um, dishes available. That was kind of a meal in itself, the rice, the chicken, and sausage. But it, it was a meal in itself just with the, the chicken bag itself. If people were gathering the back and it was time for lunch, they could uh, get a bowl of chicken bog and they were, you know, they were fine with that. It was a complete meal in itself. So I, I feel sure that that's probably how it um, originating uh by the farmers uh, cooking for uh, the people that were working on that day is what I would think, especially families that uh, were families that had so many children. and But like my husband's family, there were 13 children. They call them farm families. They would, I mean, first of all, they didn't have birth control, but they had child after child after child after child after child because they grew up working on the farm. That was their help. And everybody was working. That was a good way to feed everybody with one simple pot. So the rice culture provided the rice and it came up the coast and, and the, the farmers all had it because the salespeople and the farm stores sold it. So it would be on their shelf. They all had chickens because they were easy to care for, easy to feed, and it was a good source of protein. Now, sausage was a rarity especially during the Depression and some of the earlier times, because this is the lady we interviewed um, said that you you were rich if you had a smokehouse because not everyone owned pigs. Not everyone was able to have meat, red meat, because she said in order to have red meat, it had, first of all, you had to have a smokehouse. But second of all, you had to have a cold winter. And the climate here, we may be wearing shorts in December. You just don't know. We may never have a freeze. We may have a freeze two nights. So if that were to happen, you would lose everything in your smokehouse. So she said it was a good year if you could get sausage to go in your chicken or rice or chicken box. She did say that when the... Chicken bogs started being used commercially. You know, they used it You in my research. I mean, I was able to find where they provided it at tobacco, where they auctioned off tobacco in the 60s, 50s, was because people started getting ice boxes and refrigerators. And that changed the way that they cooked and what they were able to keep and so that she explained that. And I thought that was just phenomenal because you never think about these things, how, you know, it evolved. People, I think a lot of people eat these kinds of dishes and they don't realize how historic they are and that they really go back to an important historical period that's unique to the Carolina Georgia coast. There was a 17 year window from like 1948 to the 60s where 
chicken bog was mentioned every newspaper every newspaper like woodman of the world wrote an article in 1948 where um, the woodman circle at a chicken bog last Thursday at Ben McCombie's Tobacco Barn, 1948. So it, it was like that. I could just pull up this Sandy Plains will hold soil sample field day, January 6th. Those planning to attend are allowed to bring a chicken bog for supper. I mean, it was just like this for every, every paper had it in there. So we applied for the grant from the Pomeroy Foundation using the research and we received the marker. And, you know, at a time coming out of COVID and everybody was kind of, you know, trying to reestablish and get everybody coming back to put that up in Loris was very exciting for the community. They were excited. We were excited. And it is on the main road going into Loris, right before you approach the railroad tracks. But we thought, Horry County Library, what a great place to put it for education, for, you know, the homeschool groups or the children that come visit the library or even tourists. The mayor was there. We had the um, city council members there. We had the county council member for that district there. Um, the gentleman whose idea it was to start the Chicken Bog Festival, which is a separate thing, Singleton Bailey was there. And he and Mayor Harrelson actually did the unveiling. So it was fun. And and the Horry County Historic Preservation Commission was there as well. And when we told the library, they were so excited. They have a group called Friends of the Library, and they actually hosted a a chicken bog after they provided chicken bog, they provided all these wonderful desserts and, and iced tea. So after the unveiling, we all had this wonderful dinner prepared, um, but they really, the, the staff at the library throughout the entire library had chicken jokes posted everywhere, every stack that you went to everywhere. They had chickens throughout the entire library. They even had one of their employees dress up like a chicken. It was a, it was a good thing and very appreciative of the Pomeroy Foundation's efforts. And I'm glad that I'm doing this podcast because at first I was very nervous because I've never done this before, but the the history is so important and i i think that you neglect when you sit down to eat where that dish came from or why the the cultural heritage or the reason that it was i'm singleton bailey and you're listening to the local fairy tale of chicken box Usually it was a treat if you went to a um, a church meal, you know, where people were bringing their dishes to the church and somebody would have a pot of chicken bok there or occasions like that where people would be cooking and you got to eat some chicken bok. That was a real uh, real treat back in the day when it, in the early days of chicken bok. Uh, it wasn't that um, common to uh, run into it unless you uh, had somebody that actually was cooking it 
and uh, you got uh, had an inside track to the chicken barn. My wife has family in Mississippi and family in Arkansas, and we've been there several times, and it's not available. No one has any clue of what it is. And then when me working in the firehouse and guys would come from other parts of the country and you'd say you were cooking it, and the first question is, what is that? And uh, they have no clue about it. But, um, yeah, even, like, in the upstate of South Carolina, we're big football fans, and we go and we watch football in the upstate, and we tailgate, and if you cook it up there, people have no clue what it is. Or if you're in the campground with a bunch of folks down here at the beach and you're cooking your big pot and they want to know what it is, they've never heard of it. So I think it's it's pretty much... Right around in this area is probably where it's at. When I moved here in 1982, I mean, you would hear about it. When I was little, I had it in Bennettsville with my grandmother, you know, and I didn't know what it it was at the time. You know, I just ate it off the buffet at her favorite little restaurant where we ate fried chicken and chicken box. But as I got older, they had the Chicken Bog Festival here. And I would go, what in the world is the Chicken Bog Festival? At one time, Loris did not have a festival. And um, it, there were a lot of towns that uh, had been having festivals for quite some time. And uh, that's what that town would be known for was that particular festival. Thing like over in Mullins, you have the tobacco festival. Chabber, and you have a strawberry festival. And um, and it goes on with the different towns throughout South Carolina that have a festival. Well, the first thing I thought about was, Loris needs a festival. And I said, we don't have a festival, and we need to get on the bandwagon and not be left out of a a festival. We're proud of our town, and um, surely we've got something here that we can uh, be our claim to fame. And uh, so you start thinking about what are the things that are unique to Loris that other people wouldn't have. And, uh, of course, the first thing that popped in my mind was chicken bog. And everybody in our area would be like, oh, I make the best chicken bog. No, I make the best chicken bog, that kind of stuff. To the um, people that cook chicken bog are very proud of their chicken bog. They think their chicken bog is the best. And uh, they're proud to make their chicken bog and uh, serve their chicken bog. It may be a, a recipe that was passed down from uh, their uh, mother or father. So I said, well, that would be the thing to have. We could have a contest, and if these people that are proud of their chicken bog could enter a contest, and then we could have a judging to see which was chosen to be the most delicious chicken bog, and then they would uh, have the bragging rights for a year to claim that they're the um, best chicken bog cook around. And so Singleton Bailey and his board of directors came up with the idea of having a chicken bog cooking contest. And so we um, thought a good name for that would be the Loris Bog Off Festival. And so I pitched that idea about 1979, maybe, somewhere around there, to the um, Loris Merchants Association, which evolved into the Loris Chamber of Commerce. And um, so I pitched the idea to them. I said, hey, I think we need to um, have a festival, and I think we need to have a festival about chicken bog. 
and invite people to cook and give a prize for the best judge chicken bond. And uh, they said, you know, uh, other towns have festivals or having festivals. We don't have a festival. I think that's a good idea that we should have a festival. And as far as the chicken bug idea, they said, yes, that uh, we agree that we do have a lot of chicken bug cooks and there's not a chicken bug festival. And um, we figure that will be our claim to fame is uh, chicken bug. I have to say my dad was the first when they when they started the the Lord's Bar Golf Festival, my dad was the first one to sign up as the contestant for the bar golf. So that's kind of like if I had a memory, that would be one that I had. So for the first ten years, we uh, started uh, each year trying to refine and make better. And then after ten years, I thought that was time enough to to let it go to other people to you know have their take on it so that that's the way it's evolved over these years and so 43 years later and i'm going to say consecutive because i have not skipped one since it started even during covid it did not stop me um 43 years it has grown into two stages of entertainment we have 200 vendors there'll be a 40,000 people here we have a car show kids area chicken bog, chicken bog, and more chicken bog. So that is what we do. So the whole downtown closes down, and it's just a great time. Yeah, so the cooking contest, you have to be an amateur, and you pay a $25 entry fee, and then you'll come and set your tent up and bring all your cooking devices and pots and all the ingredients and stuff, and you have until 12 noon to cook your pot of chicken bog. But uh, so that, you know, it's pretty simple, you know, you just show up and you can have your chicken pre-tendered, but the actual bog has to be cooked on site. And and in the early hours of the bog off that day, you can see people out there cutting up the sausage and, and boiling the water and boiling the rice and getting everything ready. The, the rules of the competition is you must be in your space by 9 a.m. starting to cook. The only thing you can prepare ahead of time is you can cook your chicken and have it deboned and have it ready, but you have to be in place at 9 o'clock and set up. My wife and I rolled into Loris this year at 10 minutes till 9, and we had no clue they had shut the town down. We almost left. I, I when, when the problems came and I was there and I was late, I, I almost gave up. I, I told my wife, I said, it only costs $25. We got this food. We can go home and cook it. The family will come and eat. We won't be out of anything but $25 entry fee. So I almost left and came back to Merle's Inlet. And then I stuck it out. So we drove up to the cooking space at 8.58, and we threw everything down. And I started my pot while we set up our booth. And so I had the onions and the bacon in the pot right at nine o'clock. And I produced the sample for the judges at 12. So it took three, three solid hours to cook it. So at 12 o'clock, our volunteer cooking contest staff will go around and collect a sample for our judges. You're not limited to anything. It's uh, how you choose to prepare and what you want to put in your pot to, um, hopefully sway the judges that you'll have good food. But um, 
I think it's pretty much just a given that you cook with chicken over there. And they put it out that it's a traditional Horry County staple that has chicken and sausage and rice. So, you know, that's what they're going to be judging upon. So that's what we cook. We had judges that had a sheet of different things they would judge. One person that was judging came up with a scoring sheet with a scale of 1 to 10 for each uh, line item. For instance, like uh, aroma, you know, how it smells, and and then the taste and the texture. And um, like I said, I don't have the list in front of me here, but there were several different things that uh, it was scored on. Could score high on one thing and then low on another, you know. The judging is on its appearance, texture, and flavor. And then at 12.15, we start selling tickets for people's choice. And so you get in line, you buy your ticket, and based on the number of participants, this year we had 17 participants that won no-show, so by buying a $5 ticket from the town, you get to sample all the participants' chicken bob. So you, you go by each booth and get, a, it's two ounces, you get a two-ounce cup that we would serve to you when you come by. So people get to sample all of the cooking, and they get to vote on their favorite. That, that is one way a person can uh, come and taste the actual contestant's chicken bob. It is possible to do that, you know, for you know, buy tickets to um, be able to taste the different contestants' chicken bob. They'll get a little cup. And um, that has been very popular. It has been a great success. There's usually a long line of people waiting in line to um, get their tickets for that chicken bog tasting. One thing that people don't understand and they get mad at me every year is they run out of tickets. And it's only because we only sell 250 tickets because they their requirement is 16-quart chicken box. Like their pot has to be 16-quart. That's the minimum. And you can cook more, but the minimum is 16. So the only samples I can get out of a 16-quart is 250. It's not like bottomless. Like, I mean, it... It's got to stop somewhere. So we only sell 250, and they get to sample that, and then they get to vote for their favorite. The, the funniest thing was um, one guy came by, and uh, he got his sample, and then he came back, and he told me that uh, he needed to talk to me because we may end up in court because up until that time, uh, his wife made the best chicken bog in the world, but I must have had her recipe because I was giving her a close second. Um, another guy came by and wanted to know that I own a restaurant, that he could come buy this on, uh, on any given day. And people just came and said they really enjoyed my food. So it made me feel good. That, that was the most important thing. I mean, there's chicken bog everywhere. They have this big, um, cook off where they actually give cash awards now for the best chicken bog recipe. So everyone's competing. We do a uh, winner, which is $750, a trophy and bragging rights for the year. And then first runner-up gets $250 in a trophy, and People's Choice gets $250 in a trophy. Then the high score is a, is a winner, obviously. And I won. I, I was really in shock. Um, I, okay, I've been told that I've been told by a lot of people that um, my love language is food. Um, 
You know, uh, my mother taught me how to cook many, many things. She was an excellent chef. Sadly lost her a year and a half ago, but, um, when you, when you're preparing a meal for anyone, it can never be a chore. It has to be a love for it because if you're preparing it out of your heart to offer something good for someone else, doesn't matter what you're cooking, it's always going to be good. If you look at cooking as a chore, you'll never produce a good product. And um, so people have told me my love language is is cooking, that I cook for for my family, I cook for my church family, I, I cook for my men's groups. That goes to days of cooking at the firehouse. I just love to cook. And so when it, my name got announced that I had won, I got an overwhelming sensation that maybe, maybe, just maybe, I can do this. You know what I mean? You, when, when your family tells you your food's good and your friends tell you your food's good, but when complete strangers tell you your food's good, then it's like, uh, I'm looking for the word here. I don't know. It's um, I don't want to say it's uh, a vindication, but uh, uh, you know, uh, it it was because that's not the word. It's confirmation. You know, it's confirmation that you you are doing something that's good. And I have to say, hats off to Singleton Bailey to have the foresight to recognize the importance of this to our area. It's our cultural heritage, and I think it is even more wonderful that it this festival brings tens of thousands of people to Loris because it now that we've moved into our economy is turned into a tourism based economy and most of it here is on the coast it really does give Loris a chance to tap into tourism and support and help the economic health of a rural community, which was a rural community right now, the Grand Strand is growing closer to these communities. But I think it's just wonderful that this history can be incorporated into tourism and continue to thrive in our area. And so what happens is, so we have the cooking contest, which people can sample. We, the Lord's Chamber of Commerce, has chicken bog for sale. So we make plates, uh, five guys come and cook, and they make enough plates for 3,000 plates. So we sell chicken bog, and it'll come with a side and bread, and that's $10. In terms of the festival, the town of Loris does a great job. If anyone's listening and you want to try something great, there's a lot of good food of all types there, but the chicken bog is really good too. If anyone listening to your podcast has never been, it's worth a trip to go. Uh, several folks traveled for their first time this year because we were cooking and, um, you know, they said they'd definitely be back. So I would just like to say that if you're, if you're in the area next year, third week in October, come and get you some chicken bog in the town of Lawrence. Yeah, it is yeah. in the, the third Saturday in October. So you can, there's plenty of chicken bog. You cannot say you didn't have any chicken bog. The only time that you probably could come, if about 3 p.m., it might be getting low. So probably by 4, you might be hard to find some chicken bog. And after 5, it's gone, I'm sure. So 
If you want chicken bog, I definitely recommend coming before 3 p.m. It's a lot of fun. I just, the food, it's a food fest. <laughs> chicken bog. Uh, specifically because of the, um, of the bog off festival itself promoting chicken bog, I think that made it um, more accessible to the public. Uh, the people that uh, the restaurants were making it more accessible to the public because if it, people would come in to Loris and maybe hoping to get some chicken bog and they could find it at one of the restaurants that uh, prepare it here. We're going to be chicken bog capital of the world. We got to have chicken bog every day. So we did a little um, campaign and we do bogging every day. And so that's what we do. So, but right now my brother, he owns Richie's General Store in Adrian. So he has it on Friday. Shorty has it on Thursday. And then I'm working on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So hopefully I'll have that back in order soon. And people are very shocked. They're like, they come in the Lord. I said, they do. It's, it's crazy. And that is the local fairy tale of Chicken Bog. More information about Chicken Bog and the Chicken Bog Tale Tellers can be found at local fairy, F-A-R-E-Y, tales, T-A-L-E-S, dot com. And be sure to follow Local Fairy Tales Podcast on Facebook and Instagram to share your tales about chicken bog or other local fare. And if you don't know much about your local fare, ask. There are tale tellers everywhere. Cooking pots filled with gratitude to Singleton Bailey, Pepper Lily, Samantha Norris, Susan Platt, and returning tale teller Jay Williams, who was previously in the Burgoo episode, for sharing their time and chicken bog knowledge. Concept, production, and editing by me, Nora Vetter. Music by Anisha Thomas. And artwork by Jonathan Wright. Subscribe on your favorite platform to stream podcasts so you won't miss the next episode of Local Fairy Tales.